What's up, everybody? This is episode 51 of the Strength and Success Show. Uh, this episode is titled The Glass is Refillable, which we'll, of course, get to in a second. I'm waiting for Riley to jump on. She'll join the live. And then once she's on the live, we'll start the recording of the podcast. Remember, this podcast is a little bit different because you guys are able to ask questions on the live. There, Riley just joined. It sounds like a wave to her, but I just need to have that join thing or whatever. There we go. View request. I should ask Gabby how she sent me the request to go live before she actually went live. I don't know how that works. I don't know how to use the, the gram. Hello. Hello. Oh, I stole your line from you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe I should start with like, goodbye. And then you'd be like, hello. I don't know how that works. Yeah. Um, I was just doing the intro. Strength and Success Show, episode 51, The Glass is Refillable. This was uh, one that meant a lot to Riley. And I like the topic a lot. And it reminds me of a viral video back when people used the Book of Faces instead of the Grand Bavinsta. And it was a viral video of a college professor who has this jar in his desk. And it wasn't even like a philosophy class, like an English class, but this went viral for a while. And he has this jar in his desk and he fills it with a bunch of pebbles and he asks the class to raise their hand if they think the glass is full. Now, if you look at the glass, it's filled to the top with the pebbles. Of course, half the class raises their hands and he says to them, okay, and then he comes up with place sand and he puts place in it, which starts to fill in some of the cracks between the pebbles. And he says, okay, now raise your hand if you think the jar is full. Of course, more hands go up. And full means it could not contain anything else. So he then comes up to that jar and starts pouring water on there. And the water seeps into the sand and seeps into the pebbles. And of course, now the jar is completely full. And the moral of the story is on the surface level, just because what we see is something being full doesn't mean it actually is. The glass is refillable is, of course, an homage to the optimism the glass is half full. The pessimist, the glass is half empty. And of course, the pragmatist is going to say, it's a glass, you can just refill it. But his mindset was a little bit different there, is that you can fill whatever you want or as much as you want, as long as you want to go out and look for it or find the cracks and find the spaces. There's always an opportunity for more. There's always potential to be there. But if you're looking at things from a surface level, you may only see the glass and not the opportunities. Yeah, I've actually, I don't think I've ever seen that video before. It's so. pretty cool. I've seen, maybe I can find it on YouTube and send it out to you, but it's, it's just a good reminder that, you know, what sometimes seems at the surface level isn't always the case. There's room for more in the cracks if you look deep enough. And that's kind of the underlying message is it's not always easy or hard to see in between those cracks and in between those spaces, but there's always going to be room for more, more fulfillment in your life, more fulfillment in your jar if you're willing to go get it. And sometimes that means going into the tiny spaces that we don't always want to go to. Yeah, I kind of look at it in the sense of like, people get too hung up on things like one way or the other, you know? So if like the glass is half full, um, you're called, you're called an optimist. You're told basically, or optimists get a bad rap because it's, if you're like incredibly optimistic all the time, someone's like, well, you don't allow negative experiences. You're, uh, you're setting yourself up for failure because it's being like toxically optimistic, which I do think that that is a real thing. Like if people are, uh, not open to negative experiences, you kind of can't experience growth in that way. So I think that people get stuck on it being one way or the other, either you're an optimist or you're a pessimist. So in this situation, if the glass is half full, you kind of shut yourself off to those negative experiences, like I was saying. And a lot of negative experiences are where growth happens, or you learn about a lot about yourself, or what you like, or what you don't like, or you learn a lot about your family, or your friends, or whatever these things are. So if you're so set on things being, you know, like only allowing positivity into your life and not knowing that negativity will happen, that's not good for 
and um, like PMA, I have PMA tattooed on my arm. It's a, uh, it's like a punk thing, uh, stands for positive mental attitude. And a lot of people misconstrue that to think that you're only, you will only accept positive emotions. And that's not really how it is. PMA means that like, even when stuff is bad or even when you're going through a rough time or you're having bad experiences, that positivity will always come from it. So it's not the fact that you're ignoring that there are negative emotions or that you're just optimistic all the time and you're always happy and you're never sad and you never experience anger or whatever. It's not that there's a lack of these things. It's just knowing that even though you have these negative emotions, there's always some positive to come from it. And then, you know, conversely, if you're someone who thinks of the glass as half empty all the time and you're kind of, you're, you repel, repelling any positivity by assuming that it isn't possible. Um, I've met so many people that are just like, uh, contrarian to be contrarian and like very cynical and all they want to do is talk about negativity and like everything is a negative and they just disagree with what everyone's they disagree with everyone about everything they say so i've i've met people in the past before where we've had conversations about pma and uh they're like oh that's stupid because you know people are sad and angry and upset all the time i'm like that's that's like a that's a state of mind like that's a choice you know you make the choice to be um, upset, you make the choice to be sad, depressed, whatever. Um, well, depression is different, but you make the choices to be the mood that you're in. Um, you can allow people to affect your mood, but ultimately it's up to you to feel how you want to feel. So I think that with the whole analogy, the glass is half full or half empty, people just suck in that it should be one or the other when realistically the glass is refillable. You're going to put positive emotions in it. You're going to put negative emotions in it and it's going to keep being cyclical and it's going to fill up and eventually it'll overflow and then you can refill it. So it's not so much that it, something needs to be one way or another. Like there are a lot of things in life that are black and white. Um, but generally with emotions, with experiences, with life, with growth, it's going to be a little bit more of that gray area. Um, you're going to be happy most days, but there's still going to be some negative emotions in those days. Or maybe if you're having a really rough time, there's still some silver linings during your day and like something that made you happy or something that made you laugh. So it's not always going to be, one way or the other. Um, even people with like severe depression, they still are able to have, still able to laugh and have fun and enjoy the day. Their overwhelming attitude may not be the best, but it is not finite. Like emotions, your thoughts, your feelings are not finite. They will come and go, ebb and flow. Um, like Trevor mentioned with the glass, like you can put pebbles in it and sand and water. Like those are all different elements. There's room for different moods within your glass. So it's just as a matter of how you perceive it, but it doesn't have to be so one way or the other. You don't have to be an optimist or a pessimist. Like you can have a full range of emotions and still be a general normal human being. Like if you're not experiencing a full range of emotions, that's generally when um, you're not growing, you're not addressing things that you need to address. You're getting stuck in a bad mindset. So full range of emotions is very important. So it doesn't have to be one way or the other. Um, I've never liked that analogy. The glass is half full or half empty, I've never liked that. Like I've never wanted to answer that question. I took philosophy classes and I took, I was in, you know, a psych major. Um, I've never liked this question because I think it's stupid because it's, it's telling you that you have to be one way or the other. You have to feel one way or another. And that's not, that's not how it is. That's not how life goes. Is this a good time to say that you can't pour from an empty cup to make sure we get all the cliches out? <laughs> <sighs> I hated them. 
it's very true. And that's, you know, we always talk about that as trying to avoid seeing things in black and white. And you're, you're talking about the fact that it is a cup and it's going to hold many things. It's going to be empty at times. It's going to be full at times. You're responsible for filling that cup and chasing those things. And also you are responsible for changing that attitude and changing the tone when things are bad. Moods aren't permanent. You know, you're not stuck in a mood forever. You're in a mood for this minute or for this hour or for this day. You can change that, which is why, you know, as much as Riley hates it, it's important to realize it's a glass. You can even change cups. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to wash that shit too. You know, just, <laughs> I think I leave like one plastic cup out until Delia and my cleaning lady throws it out every day of the week, whatever. But you can change, you can fill a glass, you can change things, you can pivot. Um, I know there's a big, Schwarzenegger speech where he talks about losers have plan B and it's not about having a plan B you can go all in on a plan but you can pivot directions if something doesn't work you don't have to fret on which I think Riley's underlying tone there is is you don't have to be stuck in whatever bad happened and you don't have to be stuck whenever goods happen it's always going to be cyclic and cyclical and change but it's up to you to find that I don't want to say optimism but it's, it's up to you to find that positive attitude that Riley was talking about because sometimes you're going to experience negative emotions. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have bad times. But you can go out of your way to find good ones, too, or find good people and make everything better. Uh, can't rain all the time, as we always say around here. That's a good one. Now, see, I like that quote. And The Crow is So if you haven't watched The Crow, you should, everyone should watch The Crow. But, yeah, I think, uh, you know, ultimately, like, like I said, we're in charge of our emotions. We're in charge of how we respond to every single day. Um, if you know that you're having a rough time, but you continue to perpetuate yourself in the situation that is causing the rough time. Like generally when people are experiencing lows, they seclude themselves and they stay in the house and they don't do any whatever. Um, but if you continuously choose to do that every day and you don't even go out to like or whatever it is, um, you're kind of choosing to continue to perpetuate that negative mindset. So it can be tough to force yourself out of a situation that is making you feel not good. You know, it's it's comforting to stay inside your own home when you're sad or when you're upset. But sometimes just being like, all right, I got to get up. And even if it's to walk to my mailbox or if it's to go to the gas station, grab a drink um, or whatever it is, like what if you get yourself out of that routine of like, I wake up and I'm sad. <laughs> I wake up and I'm mad. I wake up and whatever. If you force yourself out of that a little bit, that's when you can kind of start to turn the corner and allow more of those like PMA moments to come in. Um, and that can make all the difference. So generally, I've had a couple clients or friends reach out to me recently saying that they're having a tough time. Um, and I've actually asked them like what they did to interrupt their schedule. Not necessarily that they have to, you know, not go to work or that change the whole routine. But like, what are you doing to interrupt your schedule in order to bring a little bit of happiness in? Even if that's like going to the gym at a different time or going to the gym with a friend or um, if you're someone who likes to visit like coffee shops, like I like to visit coffee shops. I also really like to visit gas stations and grocery stores because I'm a weirdo. Um, but like, you know, if that's something that you enjoy doing, interrupt your day with that. Like if you're stuck in a rut, um, instead of just being like, well, I just got to get through this next four hours being upset. And if you have the capability to like, go do something, go take 20 minutes of your day to change something up a little bit and kind of get yourself out of that mood. Um, I think that's something that everyone kind of does is they just continue to continue to commiserate in their own negative emotions, whatever, whatever it is, anger, sadness, whatever. Um, everyone does it. I've done it. I'm sure Trevor has done it. Um, it's hard not to, but it has to be an interrupted pattern in order to allow other things to come in.
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I like the expression that someone has said. I'm trying to remember where I first heard it, but it's, it's if you have the capability to do something, you have the responsibility to do something. And that's what Riley's kind of getting at. So you're capable of getting out of that funk by getting out and moving and doing something. You have the responsibility to yourself to go do that. So I think that's a great perspective and point of view. Uh, you want to get to some questions here? Yes. <laughs> All right. So we guys, we, we guys, we always ask Q&As. Riley has hers on Tuesdays. I have mine on Wednesdays. People send us questions. In our store Q&As, we usually go a little bit more depth on the podcast on some of them or some of them are so detailed. We need to go into depth on the podcast. And you guys are welcome to ask them on our live recording here as well. And of course, the podcast gets released every Monday. If you can't stay on the whole time, you can download it, listen to it Monday for all the strength questions and, and business questions and life questions and pizza questions that come our way. Pizza questions are entirely my fault, I'm sure. Uh, okay, first question. How much should a powerlifter focus on SBD in the off-season while trying to put on more size? It's an interesting question. Uh, we've talked about this often in different formats because when people say SBD, they think just the competition, squat, bench, and deadlift. And in the off-season, it's a good time to work on areas of need, so it might be a variation, but still be doing the squat, bench, and deadlift. People tend to take a power building approach or a bodybuilding approach and completely neglect the squat bench and deadlift. And then when they come back to it, it feels foreign, it feels off and they haven't done things. Strength for those movements is a specific skill. If you're not doing those movements in some capacity, you're going to diminish that skill because it's primarily driven neurologically. So it should still be a part of a program. Unless you're dealing with some type of injury, you should still be squatting, benching and deadlifting. It doesn't have to be your competition squat. It could be an SSB, a Cambridge bar, a high bar, front squat, whatever. As long as you're keeping and maintaining that pattern to some degree and challenging with a load that's significant enough, you're going to maintain the skill set. For, for general purposes, you can use those exercises in a rep range that stimulates hypertrophy and what gets lost when people say the ideal range for hypertrophy is somewhere between six to 12 reps or 30 to 70 seconds of time on attention. There's also the mechanical loading that happens and high threshold motor unit activation happens with heavy loads. We talk about this in seminars, never really losing touch with heavy loads, but still keeping the majority of the work maybe in a building phase and so forth. So you might not be taking heavy singles in the off season, but it doesn't mean you can't be taking heavy triples or so in the off season to keep touch with heavy weights, but have the majority of your programming coming from say sets of four to eight in a building zone, but doing the movements such as a variation of a high bar and stuff like that. I think that's a big mistake when people get away from the competition movements and somehow expect the competition movement to be better six months down the line because they've added muscle mass. We see that often in the difference between the strengths between bodybuilders and the strength between powerlifters. A bodybuilder can be much bigger than a powerlifter, but generally doesn't have the same strength because they don't train a specific skill. Whereas a powerlifter is going to be a little bit more dense and not as lean and definitely not as full as a bodybuilder, but they're going to have a significant more representation of strength because of the skill base the training is. So you can diminish how much skill work you do, but I wouldn't exclude it entirely. Yeah, I think that, um, I think that you like to do it kind of similarly to that I find beneficial, but like in a quote unquote off season, um, I like to keep comp lift or like a very closely related variation to the comp lift, like a high bar or a pause squat or whatever as the main movement, the secondary movement, maybe whatever more I focus on, on a, their area of opportunity and B would be more of that, like higher hypertrophy rep range. Um, so the first movement could still be progressing in like the strength and peaking type numbers but then the secondary movement is what i'm going to focus on that like six plus rep range so like if someone's you know in their off season their main uh squat for that day is a high bar squat and let's say i want to push that to a triple their back off work may be 
an SSB, a cambered bar squat, but I'm probably going to keep that six plus reps, like, you know, three to four sets of six plus reps. So that way they're getting um, the hypertrophy stimulation and they're getting like the building time. in getting the skill practice in and then also their accessory movements are going to be a little bit more of that higher rep range it's going to be more dumbbell work more uh, like split squats or good mornings or whatever that kind of thing is and then as it gets closer to comp time i may bring that secondary movement um down maybe to like keep it to like the four to six rep range or depending on like what type of day it is um it may still stay in that like eight rep range but realistically like i don't think that uh, I don't like the, we don't like the off season kind of thing, like where people refer to it as an off season because anyone can jump into a meet at any time. So I've had clients who were like, I want to jump into this meet six weeks from now. I've had clients that want to jump in four weeks from now from wherever they're at in their training cycle. So it's not necessarily that there's like an, a dedicated off season. We're not athletes to where, you know, we only compete between March and uh, September or something. And then the rest of the time is your off season. Like you, you can literally compete whenever it is that you want to. So taking too much time away from your main skill practice and like the barbell work only is a detriment to you when you decide to have FOMO and want to jump into a meet five weeks out. So I don't necessarily think that it should be too much different in your quote unquote off season. Like you are, we are always squatting, benching and deadlifting. So you should always be squat practicing squatting, benching, and deadlifting. If you want to change stuff up, that's where you change the secondary. That's where you change the accessory movements. Those are like your muscle builders instead of your lift builders. Um, we talk about that at seminars. So I don't, uh, I think that you should still practice the SBD consistently, you know, four days a week, five days a week, whatever it is that you uh, have your schedule. Like you knew going into powerlifting that the sport was squatting, benching, and deadlifting. So that's going to be what you consistently practice. Football players don't practice soccer, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they do in the formative years. Like, that's a great idea if you're in high school or fall school, going through your formative years to cross-train in different sports. But, yeah, once you pass that certain age of growth, it's, it's much more important to be specific to some degree. And you don't have to do a lot of it. Like, if you're just trying to maintain a pattern, two sets of five of a barbell squat, it's going to maintain that pattern. It doesn't need to be six sets of four. You know, you can put the like I said, you can put in more hypertrophy work if you want to or more bodybuilding accessories if you want to or something that's unloading your joints a little bit. But if you're going to – neglect the main movement and the main pattern, you're not going to come back to it and expect to be stronger. Yep. Okay. Um, first time power lifter, should they hire a coach for their first meet? This is a, one of those, we, the whole intro is not about seeing things in black and white. This is seeing something in black and white. Because sometimes you get somebody who trains in their garage or trains in a gym that isn't powerlifting or they train from a crunch and they don't know what they're doing and they want guidance right from the start. There's nothing wrong from that. Do you need to have it for your first meet? If you're just generally dipping your toes in the water and want to try it, you can follow a simple program. We have, you know, Riley has programs on her website that you can buy that are just like 12-week or 10-week template programs to get ready for a meet. We have the train-along program and our, our cultivating strength program in, in the Train Heroic platform that you can do this program that's not necessarily coaching. Is it necessary to have a coach for your first meet? No. If you're concerned with how things are going and you want to learn about the sport at a faster rate, it certainly helps. It's never going to be a necessity to have a coach per se. It's just a matter of how much on all in you want to go and how much you want to progress and how much you want to learn and making sure that you're not making mistakes and learning by accident or along the way that you're having someone guide you a little bit faster, or a little bit more thorough, or someone who can make sure that you're not doing too much or too little or keep accountability. There are many reasons to have a coach. Whatever meet number you're on, one or 20, doesn't matter. That's really not the, the difference maker of whether you should have a coach or not. You have a coach when you want more guidance, more structure, 
uh, better eyes or more cueing, accountability, or for whatever reasons. I had people that work out with their, their team and their team has like programming, but they still have outside coaching because they've realized that they can't fit that level of programming or they stop progressing on that level of programming and they want something individualized. And every now and again, you get someone who wants to train as a powerlifter but doesn't want to compete in powerlifting, but they want to do it as healthily as possible because they really like the strength, even though they never want to hit a platform, they might end up working with a coach because it keeps them from going in and maxing out every single time they're in the gym. You know, it's just a matter of having more form, more structure, and a, an ability to learn. What meet number you're on really doesn't matter. If you're a, I think for green as a powerlifter, um, like let's say that you started and you're like three months in and you decide to want to do a meet, um, I generally recommend that you have a coach in person um, for that. Like if I've had clients, I've had people come to me before asking to literally start from scratch with powerlifting. Like they've, you know, maybe squatted before, maybe deadlifted before, maybe benched before like once or twice, but they don't really know what it is that they're doing. As a remote coach, it is very hard to coach someone who's super, super green that way. Um, it is a little bit easier if you have someone working with you hands-on for a little bit. So if you're someone that's like so new to powerlifting and you're just, you're someone who's not afraid and you just want to jump in and you've only been doing this for two months, like two months and you're, you're like, oh, I'm going to just do this local meet that's right down here or it's at my gym or whatever. I've never done anything before. It would be helpful to have someone in person, you know, like Trevor mentioned, guide you, kind of tell you if you restrict you, I guess, a little bit from uh, blowing your load before you get on the platform basically. Um, and it also would help to navigate meet day if you have someone w working with you in person. Um, so those are all like, it's like a cherry on top. You don't necessarily need it. But if you are concerned and you don't know what to do and you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing, like getting a coach in person is helpful. Um, as you get a little bit more seasoned or you get a little, little bit more aware of your body, like you can have a remote coach or just a program or whatever it is. Um, but no, I don't, no one necessarily needs it. Like you can find templates for free anywhere, pretty much. You can just Google that. Um, but what you get with a coach is the feedback. So if you're someone who really wants to improve technique and form, getting a coach that actually provides that, you know, not just a program or a template, getting a coach that provides the feedback for you is going to benefit you more than if you just get on a template and you have no idea what you're doing. And you're like, I think I'm doing this right. Um, so it just depends. But I don't think that you necessarily need one for the first meet. I think that it's good to as someone who did not, I did not dip my toes in early. I was, I was scared. So I took a long time to do my first meet because I was like, oh, I'm not going to be ready. Um, I'm not going to be strong enough. I did that. So I think that if you're powerlifting, you just started, like you should just jump in immediately. Get yourself, go to a meet, see what they look like, see how they run from the outside, and then just jump into a meet and have fun. Like that really should be how it is. And you'll, you'll be less scared of competing later on if you have just you just did it and you didn't think about it. What do we got next? Uh, tips for self, self wrapping. Is switching back and forth wraps a waste? I'm not sure what they mean by switching back and forth wraps unless they mean switching back and forth between wraps and sleeves. No. What I think what they mean is like uh, chokers one week, phantoms next week, like trying uh, to figure out which wrap it is that they like. That's yeah. how I. When you're transitioning the wraps, there's a lot to learn. First, I think everyone should learn how to self-wrap to some degree, so at least you know, and you never know, an emergency, for whatever reason, sometimes something happens or your wrapper can't make the meat or something like that, and you don't want to have to go with a strange wrapper, or at least for training purposes. There are some people who do an, an insane amount of wrapped reps uh, and sets. What I mean by that is, like, I've seen coaches program eight sets of wrapped squats, which I think is stupid and ridiculous, <laughs> but I've seen it. It's out there. 
it's dumb, but that's not my, my task. But sometimes you need to be able to self-rap because if that's the case, some people rap early and some people like when I w was competing in raps, um, I would take like one rap warm up and then go right into my weight. And that was it. Like, I would go up heavy in, in sleeves and into the wraps and the whole nine, like a pretty big jump, like a 69 pound jump. I put the wraps on because it was there. So people who are getting ready for wraps, they don't know what kind of wraps they want. Some wraps are a little bit thicker and stiff, like a casting wrap. Some wraps are very, very springy and they can wrap around more. It's more of like a rebound wrap and some wraps are kind of somewhere in between. So sometimes you might be trying different wraps in the beginning stages. But tips for self-wrapping for a lot of people, most feds outside of like RPS, APF and stuff like that, and SPF will use like 2.5 meter wrap. So in America, WRPF and USBA only allow a 2.5 meter wrap. It's a little harder to self-wrap a 2.5 meter wrap unless you're very familiar with it. When you're first starting, it kind of helps to have a three meter wrap so you have more room to play with so you don't freak out about how tight you got it, how many revolutions you got until you get better at it. Wrapping like anything else is a skill. You just got to get used to it and practice it a lot over and over and over again until you get good at it. So if you're going to be self-wrapping, just pretty much practice wrapping yourself every day until you get better and better and better at it. Um, Danny Basinsic self-wrapped his 953 all-time world record squat. He's self-wrapped the entire time that I've been coaching him for every meet he's done. And there's multiple 900-pound squats that are self-wrapped. Phil Herndon, same thing. Um, he self-wrapped his squats for nine-something and self-wrapped his squat for when he had the all-time world record at 950. You know, these guys got very, very good at self-wrapping. Gabriel was getting ready for Ghost Clash, self-wrapped the entire training prep and then had someone wrap him on meet that he was familiar with in the same wrapping style. Derek Bailey wraps all of his own squats. You know, it's one of those things where somebody else wrapping you can spare your hands a little bit as far as the grip and the fatigue and maybe get them a little bit tighter. But there's no guarantee that person can make the meet with you and you don't want to show up and ask a stranger to wrap you who's going to wrap you in a different style you're not familiar with. So it is very, very beneficial to practice self-wrapping and at least know how if you're going to compete in wraps just in case. The one I was thinking about, Danny Masensic with this one, uh, because I feel like this is the smartest thing that anyone's ever done with wraps is that he orders, he has the chokers and he has three pairs. Five. He has five now? Okay. Two, always five. So he has three that are, he pre-rolls them before the meet. That's what you're getting at, right? Yep. Yeah. So he brings five pairs, two warm-up singles in the warm-up room and three platform attempts and they're all pre-rolled. Yeah. But he does that every session. Like when I trained with him at Rockwell, if he was squatting, I would look over at the bench and there would be back then it was just three pairs so he would have three pairs of pre-rolled wraps that he did the night before so that way when he came in he wouldn't have to um pre-tension anything he wouldn't have to re-roll he wouldn't have to make his like forearms or hands hurt from like rolling all these wraps but i feel like that's so smart <laughs> like it's just a it one is a testament to how um uh red what's what, what's the word i want to use for calculated that yes. is you know like he he buys multiple pairs of his wraps so that way he doesn't have to re-roll his wraps in between attempts. So I feel like that's super smart. Like if I was self-wrapping, that's probably what I would do because that's the biggest pain in the ass on meet day is one, re-rolling, especially a wrap roller, like that sucks. Um, that's not fun for anyone. And then like, if you're self-wrapping and you're re-rolling, the forearm pump, ouch. <laughs> like, <laughs> so especially like someone, you know, like that, like Danny, he squats 953. You know, like that's a, that's Phil, a... When we went to the current, Phil did the same. He had three, three pairs of wraps that were like pre-rolled and ready to go. He, like, he had like a loose pair for warm-up wraps, but then he had his, his platform wraps pre-rolled, ready to go. And it is so smart when you self-wrap to save your hands. A little bit more expensive, but hey, you're trying to achieve something, so you got to invest. Yeah. Okay. Uh, shoulder impingement. Anything to do besides rest it? I can't bench without pain. 
This was the one I answered that rest is never the answer, right? This is from like two weeks ago. <laughs> rest is never the answer. You know, motion is lotion and movement is medicine. First and foremost, you want to understand and never just assume you have a diagnosis. Get it checked out so you know what you're actually dealing with. An impingement would be something is trapped in there causing pain. You have to find a way to open that up so it's no longer impinged. But first of all, there's always something you can do. If you have shoulder impingement, it may hurt certain movements. Find movements that don't hurt and double up on those. But when it comes to your actual physical therapy or corrective program that somebody has written for you, you actually have to freaking do it. That's the biggest thing is people will be like, oh, let me just do this before I bench and warm up. Like, no, you have a problem that has occurred from a faulty pattern or poor, poor posture or um, a movement dysfunction over time. And you think that just doing it once or twice a week is gonna alleviate it, but you've been living with it for weeks, months, years. You have to do it every day and you have to do it two to three times a day to really see it get better. Uh, I had the injury to my glute, the obturator externus, and I was coming back and I was like, wow, you heal really fast. I'm like, no, I rehab really aggressively. Literally two or three times a day, I'm doing movement to do my rehab, getting blood flow through it and working on the open it up because I can't accept mediocrity and I can't just sit there and let it rest. It's not going to fix itself. Just like anything in life, the problem will never fix itself. You have to attack it head on and be very, very aggressive with the solution and really commit to it. I love when I have daily homework for people and I, I can see if their patterns improve or don't improve. And I will always get like a response from something like, since I've been including these, my movement is so much better, like, duh. And I'll see people who have the same problem and it's recurring over and over again. I'm like, did you do your homework? Well, maybe like once or twice this week or before I squatted, like, okay, cool. You live this way all the time. If you don't do something all the time to fix it, you're still going to live that way. I can give you a plan. I can't make you do it. Yeah, it's like, it's, I mean, it's tissue tolerance at that point. If you have pain, you have to expose it to the same movement. Like, Squatting, benching, deadlifting, we have to do that. So if you got injured doing a squat, bench, or a deadlift, you eventually have to progress yourself back to squatting, benching, and deadlifting. So even if it's starting light, like benching, if it's starting light and it's just the barbell and you're just focusing on bringing the barbell to your chest full range of motion, even if that's just 45 pounds for 10 reps, like that's still progress based off of what you weren't able to do. So tissue tolerance and like building yourself up, even if it's just five pounds, like I think that's the problem with injuries is that people have such massive egos and it's like if you bench 300 pounds but you only have 135 loaded on the bar because things hurt and that's all that you can bench without pain people are like well I'm just not gonna bench because it's only 135 that is weak-minded um if you can bench 135 that's progress right so if you went from not being able to bench at all but now you can bench 135 but you're mad because it's only 45 percent of what your max is or whatever it is who cares? <laughs> you can still bench. So then what you do is from 135, you add five or 10 pounds every single week and try to improve, or you add reps every single week and try to improve. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess my question, my initial question to this question was, how do you know it's a shoulder impingement? Like it could be a lot of times with shoulder pain, people are generally internally rotating with their bench because they don't know how to retract or depress their scapulas. So they are just internally rotating. All they're doing is putting pressure on the shoulder head basically um so my first guess would be in this situation would be to like work on retraction and depression um and all that with the bench press and see if that makes a difference um but yeah i don't know if you have pain resting is not the answer like trevor said movement is medicine um figure out what you can do that's always if you find an excuse you'll never find a solution basically these people see the glasses half empty <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, right knee constantly caves on squats, even though I'm right dominant. I remember this one too. So 
this was an unusual question to say I'm right dominant, but I'm a, I, I assume it was right-handed, you know, right-handed versus left-handed and so forth. And that really isn't the issue here. If, if only one knee is caving, chances are it's a stability loss somewhere. It has nothing to do with whether we're right side or left side because we're meant to be symmetrical bipeds. We, the left and right move evenly and symmetrical when the left's going forward, the right's coming back, when we walk and do so, and even crawling. So things are meant to move in symmetry. If one side is moving out of symmetry, then somehow stability was lost on that side and your body is compensated. Generally for this, more often than not, if it's only one knee caving in, people are like, oh, you have weak glutes in that side. It's like, no. Glute inhibition would be the, the symptom, not the cause. It's probably something like the foot over pronating on that side or poor rooting or a fallen arch or something like that that's drawing that knee in the first place and then the glute can't do its job because the foot can't maintain its stability. So usually you want to start at the bottom of that chain. What's creating force? We create force through the feet and it goes upwards. Look at the bottom of that chain and work your way up. So people will start at the hip and be like, oh, well, the knee's caving, so it must be a weak glute on that side. And they do thousands of reps of like hamstring work or, or banded glute and bridges and, and clamshells. I'm like, to a degree that's gonna help strengthen that glute, but if the glute is the symptom, not the problem, you're still just, you're still having the problem. So you have to identify the problem first before you can create the solution. And that's where people don't do is they don't look for the problem, they just look for a, some type of like quick fix or a hack. I'm like, okay, so my right knee's caving, let me put a band around my ankles and it'll force it out. Kind of, because you're gonna learn how to use it. I prefer the band around the feet because then you're gonna learn actually how to supinate the feet. Um, there's a lot of argument about pronation of the foot, of internal rotation, that does happen when you're below parallel. But if you're seeing it collapse like that, that usually means it's happening on the descent before you've gotten the below parallel and you're pronating too soon. So you probably need to focus more on foot supination at some point to work on that, that outside blade of the foot a little bit to have more stability. And then you can pronate to come out of the hole. So we have to go out before we can come in and go out, you know, kind of like that vase style. So you have to just understand that you're probably losing a stability on the descent before you even get there. And that's your body's compensation to try and refine stability is to pull something towards the middle because that's worth losing it. I feel like uh, generally, whatever, at least in my experience, um, I'm having a, I don't want to say similar issue right now, but the knee that is pulling in for me is the one that is not the problem, but it's trying to search for compensation, is trying to search for balance because my other side is not in balance. Like my, currently my left hip internal rotation is poor, my left foot pronates, uh, having some patella tendonitis type stuff that I just got worked on last night. Um, and it kind of comes down to the fact that like my internal rotation and my stability, my hip stability is not great. And my hip internal rotation is not great. Um, but that is causing like my foot is collapsing. So we're not sure which one started which but both both things are happening. Like my foot is collapsing. And then also my, uh, my hips are basically uneven, like there's there's like a one inch difference between how my hip hikes basically. But my right knee pulls in to try to find compensation for my left not being strong or stable right now. So even if it's your right that's constantly pulling in, it probably is your quote unquote dominant side because that's what's trying to find stability for it. So just addressing the right side because that's what's pulling in is probably not the root cause. Um, it also may not be your hip. It may not be your ankle. It could be your bracing. Like there are so many, it could be your shoulder. Like there are so many things that it could be um, in that situation to where you're going to have to like really either go see a clinician or a PT to kind of assess what's going on. Or if you're smart enough to spot that in a movement and spot what's coming first or what's uh, breaking down first in the movement, then you can kind of address, oh, it's actually my shoulder. It's not my hip or, oh, it's actually my foot. It's not my hip, whatever it is. Um, videos are really important in that aspect or going to someone that you trust that can kind of tell you what's going on um, is helpful, but it's not always just because it, 
just because it looks like it's your right side doesn't mean that it's your right side. <laughs> that comment made me laugh. To hear Riley say your squat is an issue, there's no hope for mine. Um, it's, it's just, it's pain right now. <laughs> just pain. That's we see the patient and we, we see the symptom, but it, the challenge is identifying the cause. And so you have to usually start up the chain and work your way through there. And, and when Riley got checked out by Tony Rogers, you know, he was assessing the balance between left and right sides. He's able to see, okay, so the left side isn't functioning as well as right. And then it's chicken or the egg from there, but he's going to address both say, okay, let's work on loosening this. Let's work on strengthening that. Uh, got a question here. Is it bad that only one foot points out when you squat, only the right foot is out? Yeah, you're going to die. Uh, <laughs> sorry, well, I'm just kidding. It, it's, it's hard to say that a compensation is bad. Um, generally speaking, though, it's where your body's finding the most balance. So you, like Riley was just talking about, you have to identify where you're out of balance for that reason. So if the left foot is compensating by flaring out, you know, there might be, a, I'm sorry, the right foot, there might be a compensation issue there where maybe you don't have the same, like Riley said, you don't have the same internal rotation on the left hip and your body has to compensate, or perhaps you have some type of stiffness in the right ankle mobility, and that's causing your foot to have to flare out because the mobility isn't there in the ankle. You know, you go through a series of checklists of, okay, this is different than this foot, why? Why am I not symmetrical on both sides? When it's symmetrical on both sides, you have something like knee cave on both sides, then you can say it's weak abductors and that's the problem because it's happening on both sides. When it's happening on one side, you have to identify why. So I would probably like the same thing. I would start with the ankle, test the ankle mobility, see if one side moves further than the other and there's an addresser. If it's not the ankle, then look at the hip. Does one hip internally or externally rotate better than the other and then address that. So if one side can internally rotate farther than the other, then you need to strengthen internal rotation on the opposite side to kind of even things out. You know, we're always looking for a way to create homeostasis our body as a whole but also our movement you know we want our movement to have that homeostasis as well where things are moving symmetrically as possible there's some wear and tear and damage that might limit that like if you've had sustained injuries over time your body's going to build up compensations around that like for example i don't have you know left adductor magnus so i have compensations around that i tend to pronate a little bit harder on my left foot than my right when i'm in the bottom because hip extension is a little bit harder for me out of the hole on the left side so sometimes they're going to be from prior injuries, but if we can spot them beforehand, maybe we can prevent that from ever happening from the wear and tear and the breakdown. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like two back-to-back -back questions. Mm -hmm. Answer. So, um, okay. Next question is difference in cueing a male versus a female. I think the only real difference is, is the verbiage you might use. You know, um, when you're talking to a male, sometimes they like a little bit of degradation. You know, I've, I've had male athletes that want to be like, tell me my mother sucks, tell me I'm terrible, tell me I'm lame, whatever. Uh, and there's some females who probably don't necessarily respond well to that. But you're going to learn the athlete, the level of communication based off how they talk to you. Riley's talked about that a, a lot of pay attention to the verbiage they use to you, because that's probably the same verbiage you want to return back and mirror to them, because that's what they're going to understand. That's how they speak. That's how they're going to listen. If you're trying to speak in your tone and in your text, they may not understand because that's the way you learn. That's the way you listen. It's important to pay attention to what they're asking and how they're saying something and then repeat that to them so they can understand it. People get hung up on what's the best cue. It doesn't exist because cues are just a means to an end. And you're trying to get to that point where you're making it so they can understand what the directive is. It doesn't really matter if they're a male or female. It matters if you're speaking their language. Yeah, it's not so much male or female. Uh, that I pay attention to, it's going to be more of base of knowledge, basically. So if I have a client who, for example, like if I have a client who doesn't ask any questions about anything at all, like they don't care what movements they're doing, they don't necessarily care why they just, they just want to lift and they just have fun lifting. I don't necessarily have to be so 
uh, anatomical. I don't have to, uh, they like literally just don't care about anything, like why they're doing anything. I can just tell them like, hey, this looks good. Let's just change this, make everything really basic, you know, like um, whatever it is. Like it's, it just depends on their base of knowledge and how they speak to me, like Trevor was mentioning. If I have a client who is consistently able to speak to me in anatomical terms, or they want to understand the why of what it is that they're doing, I can cue them a little bit differently instead of just saying like chest out, I can tell them to externally rotate at the shoulders more. So it really depends on like what information they're giving me and how they are talking to me about their movement or their program. Um, I'm not like talk over someone's head. Like if someone has a relatively low base of knowledge for anatomy, I'm not going to talk over their head about anatomy and make them feel stupid by using anatomical terms that's not fun for that lifter that makes that lifter feel uncomfortable that lifter probably feels stupid asking questions because they don't feel like they're being spoken to on the same level so regardless of gender it doesn't matter i just speak to the lifter on the same level that they're at got a question here about a caloric deficit is there a idea of max caloric deficit range for someone trying to cut weight without impacting strength progress um, you're going to hear different things on this as far as what a max caloric deficit should be. The general rule of thumb for most people is not to exceed a 500 calorie deficit because you're going to lose significant muscle mass if you do. I'd probably start more conservative than that. And if you're trying to lose more weight at a rapid pace, and that means you've let yourself go and you shouldn't be concerned with a weight class per se because you have a longer journey than that. But this is something you usually want to work out with a nutrition coach because if you're going to be doing a performance-based diet, it might need to change on a very frequent basis. You can't just say, let me make a 500 calorie deficit because that deficit will change over time based off your activity levels and so forth. Your metabolism tends to slow a little bit the longer you run a caloric deficit. So there might be times where you need maintenance calories or even a surplus slightly to let it kick back in because thyroid hormone diminishes and stuff like that. It's not so simple as here's a blanket number. Let's be 600 calories below every single day because that's gonna impact people differently. There are some people who start to feel an impact differently from a mental perspective, from 200 to 300 calories a day, because like, oh, I'm not, I don't have the energy in there. That's them communicating to themselves and convincing themselves that they're more tired and fatigued because they don't have the calories there. Physiologically, they're probably the same, but psychologically it changes. So when you look at a, a definitive number, it's gonna affect people differently. For some people, they will drastically feel a 500, caloric, 500 calorie caloric deficit more so than a 250 caloric deficit. I would always start on the lowest end of the spectrum, 100, 200, see how you feel. And if you're slowly losing weight, keep at it. Until it slows down, then maybe add another 100 to 200 calories to that. The biggest mistake people make nutritionally is trying to change everything at once. Slow, gradual changes is going to work for better for almost everything you do in life because it's not going to be so abrupt. It's not going to interrupt your entire lifestyle. It's something you can grow to and become and make it your new habit and make it your new lifestyle. When people try and do a drastic cut or a drastic change, it never works out well and they can't stick to it and then they rebound from it. So look to a gradual progress. If you decided you want to lose weight and keep your strength, figure out what your caloric needs are for maintenance, take about 100 to 200 calories off of that on each day, and it's going to fluctuate on a daily basis. You're probably going to burn more on a heavy leg day than you will on a, on a light upper body day. You know, you're going to have more expenditure. So figure out what your expenditure is on a daily basis, cycle within that expenditure, and then keep it to it's like one, 200 calories below, and also figure out a timeline. I'm going to do this for six weeks. I'm going to do this for eight weeks and so forth. It doesn't want to be, you shouldn't have to be like, I'm going to do this for 12 months because you'll get diminishing returns the longer you do it. Um, it does take a little bit of planning, a little bit of thought process. If you don't know how to do it, you either work with a nutrition coach or get something like the RP app that will do it and update every week for you. You can get the RP app and just use code Jaffe. It's like less than two, two Starbucks a month is what this thing's going to cost you to use the app and learn how to eat. So it's just having guidance always helps more than a guess.
that um, when you're starting to cut calories, I feel like when, like especially carbs, I feel like when you're taking in your carbs is important. Um, not necessarily, maybe not necessarily actually physiologically, but psychologically. Um, I, whenever I was in uh, a deficit to cut for 148, I always made sure that my carbs were pre and post training. Like all of my carbs were pre and post training. And like whether or not that actually physically helped me maintain strength better or not, it mentally felt better because I felt fueled going into the workout and I felt like I was fueling myself after the workout. So if you are someone who works out later in the day, having majority of your carbs during the day and then saving everything else for post, not necessarily saving everything else for post-workout, but having less carbs post-workout because you work out at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., um, psychologically that can help you because everyone associates carbs with fuel. Everyone associates getting that in and being, whenever you're low on carbs, you're like, oh, I have no energy. Like everyone says that whether or not they do or don't have energy, like whether or not that they have carbs in their reserves or whatever it is, they always feel like they don't have energy going into a workout if they didn't have any carbs. That's why you see people open up bags of Sour Patch Kids or something at the gym because they're like, oh, I didn't eat any carbs all day today. So I'm just going to eat these Sour Patch Kids right now. And that's going to make me feel better. That's going to make my workout 100% better. So mentally, I think that if you're cutting calories, putting your carbs around your workout or at least majority of your carbs before you work out. So that way you have that fuel and mentally you feel stronger for having those carbs in there. What, like I said, whether or not that, that that's actually physiologically true for everyone, um, mentally it is. I agree. You know, it's, we neglect often the psychological aspect that is the component of whatever nutrition structure you follow, whatever training structure you follow, competition structure. The psychological aspect is really what dictates and leads to everything else. If you believe you're fueled, you're going to perform better. If you believe you're tired, you're going to perform poorly. You know, if you can change your belief system by a simple trick like that, like Riley talked about, like putting most of your carbs before and after training, then you're probably going to perform better regardless of whether the calories are the same or not, just because you believe you are. And that's a, that's a big thing to build on and a big thing to work on when you're doing nutrition programs or a powerlifting program is what is your belief system? Because that's what you're going to perform best on is your belief system. So that's a great point. Um, okay. Next question is, would you recommend someone get a higher level coach as they advance? I'd be a fool to say no, but <laughs> You're gonna get a. You're gonna get what you pay for. You're gonna get what people's expertise are. You're gonna get what experience is. But most importantly, you're going to get what you put in. There are people who've hired very, very expensive, high-level coaches or just really, really expensive coaches and have gone nowhere because they don't put any effort in. So, if you want to take yourself to the next level and you're committed and investing to that higher-level coach, then you're going to have to do the work they dictate to you. You generally get one of two responses when I program for athletes is this is all you want me to do or you want me to do all of this. And it just kind of dictates, <laughs> it just kind of dictates the work ethic of that athlete. Because when someone says this is all you want me to do, it's like, okay, this person really wants to work hard. And someone looks at it as like, I have to do all of this. And I'm like, that person hasn't been working very hard and doesn't want to work very hard. Now, I'm generalizing to some degree, but that's generally how it's going to look to some people when you do that. Because if you think the work that you have to do is difficult or hard, or as everyone says, he's killing me, I'm going to do better. You have to do what's necessary for you to be better. I cannot make you lift that barbell just because I'm a high-level coach or Ryan's a high-level coach. We can't make you do the work. So you should get a high-level coach when you want to take yourself to the next level and you're willing to go all in on the effort. Doesn't matter. I don't care if you're uh, uh, intermediate or an absolute advanced. When you're ready to go to another level and commit to that level, that's when you should get a higher coach. Now, I'd like to take this one step further and at like, 
ask the question, what it is that you find to be a higher level coach? Like some people will say that having a higher level coach is someone who is a high level lifter. A high level lifter may not always be a high level uh, coach. So they can, someone can be strong, but it's different to be strong than it is to help people get strong. So I think that you defining what it is that a high level coach means to you is probably like the first step in deciding because you can have someone who is moderate average on the aspect of strength, but they really, really understand the concept of movement or patterns or technique or whatever, and they can help you get stronger and they have a track record for showing you that they can get people stronger. Um, but just because someone is number one in whatever, blah, 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 doesn't necessarily mean that they have the same pedigree of a quote unquote high level coach. They are a high level lifter. They are very, very strong, but what they did to get strong probably won't be what you need to get strong unless you are also that outlier. Um, so I think that defining what high level coach means to you is probably the first question that you should ask in regards to if you need a higher level coach. Um, but ultimately like who you hire as a coach should be someone that you know that you can trust someone that you agree with, like you have similar beliefs or whatever, because if you don't trust that coach, how are you going to expect that you can trust them with your strength? So having, making sure that whatever coach that you hire, that you have ultimate belief in and say like, yes, I know that this person can help me get stronger. They're going to walk with me side by side on my strength journey. They're going to help me and they're going to answer my questions. They're going to do all these things. Even if that means that that coach only has a couple athletes or whatever it is. Like I just, I understand the ask of this question. Like I understand like what they're getting at, but I feel like they're looking for something different with a quote unquote high level coach that you can get from someone that you trust. And that is showing you that they can progress you in the proper way. So I don't know. It kind of depends on what you think a high level coach is like what the difference is between that and a low level coach. <laughs> Who are you calling out? <laughs> um, no one. Yeah, right. That's a big, that's a big issue. Someone in the coaching industry where someone's a high level athlete and they take on athletes for coaching and then they find that, they're not necessarily getting coached. They're just getting the program that the athlete follows themselves. And what, like you said, is what got them there. They're the outlier at that point. And it's what they've done to get strong or stay strong, but it isn't necessarily what you need to get strong. So that's, that's an excellent point of defining what your needs are more than how well-known or uh, strong that particular coach is. You know, is, is it someone who could help identify and work with your needs? Because that's what's going to be high level to you. You got a mesh. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more. Okay. If you weren't coaching full-time, what other career would you have? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Arnold says there's no plan B. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. I've always been involved in this my entire life. I've always wanted – I wasn't planning on being a coach, but I've always been in the fitness industry – or the healthcare industry of some kind, and I've managed facilities and gyms. So I would still be involved in this field in some capacity. My original track was to be a physical therapist. So maybe that's where I would have gone with it. I don't know. Um, I've never really sat down and said, what would I want to do instead? Because if I got to that point where I'm starting to think, what would I want to do instead? It's probably me trying to transition to that. So uh, my thought process has never really gone there of what I would have done instead. And I also try to, to not get caught up in what ifs. Very hard for me to do because I will dwell on things at times where I was very aware of this. But I, I will dwell on certain things that I cannot change and they will keep me up at night. 
So it's, it's very difficult for me to do that and even want to think about that because that's what I'm going to go to if I did that. So I'm not looking for plan B and I'm not looking for a way out of what I do. What I'm looking for is what are more opportunities within what I already do and how am I going to get more fulfillment out of it? I don't want to be different. I want to be better at what I already do and, and optimize it as much as possible. There's still more room for me to grow. My better days are still ahead of me. I still want to get more from it. That's how I look at it. Like I wouldn't want to do something different. I want to learn to do more with what I already have. Uh, I have an answer for this, but only because my trajectory was entirely different before um, powerlifting coaching. When I was going to school, my initial plan was um, some sort of counselor. My specialization would have been like either trauma or addiction, um, just based off of my past. I also always kind of had the mindset of teaching. Like if I went to school and um, had gotten like my master's or PhD in psychology, I would have wanted to teach psychology, not necessarily open up my own practice or anything like that. Um, but I've always enjoyed teaching, um, talking to people, helping people kind of help, works right now with the job that I have, because obviously my job is basically teaching people how to get stronger and helping them get stronger. So um, I feel like my other career path would have been teaching psychology in some aspect or like a counselor in some aspect. Um, also for a long time, I wanted to own a coffee shop, but uh, I have potential other avenues for that currently. So I don't necessarily have to own a coffee shop, but I can expand um, my businesses possibly. So that's cool. I'm gonna keep that one to myself though. But um, yeah, I think I would have been in some sort of teaching profession regardless, uh, whether or not it was powerlifting coaching or psychology. I just feel like that was the natural trajectory for myself was some sort of teaching or counseling. Both Ryan and I would, I don't think she would disagree with that, that we found our purpose, you know, and we just found the avenue that which we can best deliver our purpose. She's still teaching. And we were once on a walk and we were talking about this. She's like, I don't use my psychology degree. And I was like, the hell you don't. <laughs> you know, the ability to communicate, that ability to listen, that's, that is her psychology degree. That's what, that's what she specializes in is communication with the athlete and getting them to understand and teach. So it's, it's one of those things where once you find your purpose and your passion, look for every way possible to maximize it, not, not look for a different avenue. Look within that already included avenue and find more within it because you're going to get even more fulfillment from it because you already love it. Yeah. All right. Now, that is the end of episode 51. The, the glass is refillable. I'm going to go fill my glass by driving out west to go see my son because that's what's going to fulfill me and fill my cup up. And uh, then I'll pour it back out later. So, <laughs> so it can be refillable. Thank you, Riley. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you to all of those who joined and sent us questions and do it. Thank you to all of those who support Culture Nutria. Thank you to all of those who tried the Cultivating Strength Program on Training Rogue. Thank you to all of those who share the podcast every time it comes out Monday and put quotes up from that. We love that. We appreciate it. So I will see you guys. We will see you guys next week, Thursday, same time, 1.30. Have a great one. Bye.